All right, we'll pick up and continue where we left off. And as I pointed out, Albrecht's contribution to soil science was, was far more extensive than this, but this is just an element of one of the contributions that he made. But he helped us understand the importance of calcium in the base saturation. Now, we also have calcium reported up here in parts per million. We have magnesium here reported in parts per million. And we have potassium here reported in parts per million. So what is the difference between these numbers and these numbers? And in order to, to, to kind of express that, I want to go back a slide or two here. And when we're looking at the, the reported amount of calcium in the base saturation, what we're looking at, is, looking at is the amount of calcium that's actually attached to the mineral particle with that, with that electrical bond, right? But if we look also into the other constituents of the soil, in the organic matter, in the microcolonies of bacteria, in the minerals that are dissolved in the water, because this water isn't just pure distilled H2O, it's, it's got minerals dissolved in it, and in arthropods or tree roots or anything else that is not attached to that soil particle, we've got a larger um, amount of material that we're measuring then because we're measuring not just what's attached to the soil particle but also what's between the soil particles. Do you follow me? Okay. So and this is why we have both of these ways of expressing what's in the soil. Here we have the potassium that is tied to the soil particle with that electrical bond in the base saturation. Here we have potassium that might be parts of, of microbiology that was in the soil, uh, uh, potassium that was, that was streaming through the soil, moving in the soil, and the soil solution and other dissolved minerals and so forth. So here we have a representation of the total amount of potassium in that given amount of soil. Here we're just looking at a specific aspect of the potassium that's in the soil. And having that understanding, <clears throat> what I want to do first, and don't get hung up on the numbers here again because you can, you can look at this and download it from, uh, from our website. I just want to explain the process to you and have you comprehend what you're doing. Because as we go through each of these steps, I want you to understand what you're actually doing, what's actually happening in the soil. And uh, the first thing that I look at, as I said just before we broke, is I want to see where the, the pH is. Obviously, my pH is acidic. That tells me that I have hydrogen. Lots of hydrogen in that soil, doesn't it? Because that measurement of pH is a measurement of the hydrogen ions in the soil. So if there's lots of hydrogen ions, I'm going to have an acid pH. And that's what this is telling me here. I also want to look at my CEC to determine, uh, to some degree, how expensive is it going to be to work with this particular soil <coughs> in terms of addressing the problems that it has. And this, again, is a consideration for some of you that might be looking for properties. If you have a soil that is very deficient in... In, in calcium, for example, and the CEC is very high, it's going to require lots more inputs to make that soil productive than a soil that would be um, more like a silt loam in its character. And you'll see how these numbers work out here uh, based on, on this calculation. All right. Now, one of Albrecht's 
um, uh, equations was this one here that's at the top of the slide. And this tells us how many tons of limestone per acre to add to a given amount of soil to eliminate hydrogen. That's what this equation does. This eliminates the hydrogen in the soil. Now, if I eliminate that hydrogen ion, what happens to my pH? If there's no excess hydrogen ions, the pH is neutral, isn't it? So this will take your pH to 7, or neutralize your pH. And this equation is predicated on working with the, with the top 6 and 2 thirds inches of soil. That's traditionally what's considered a plow layer. And I plow deeply because we were counseled to plow deeply, so I work with the top foot of soil. So I'm going to use this equation first, and then I'm going to apply another step because I'm going to work with the whole top foot of soil. <clears throat> Tons of limestone per acre times a factor, 0.5, times the CEC, this I get from my soil analysis, times the percentage of hydrogen that I have in my base saturation. So what I'm doing is I'm taking this number times this number times this number to tell me how many to tell me how many tons of limestone to add per acre. Do you see how that works? And all I've done down here is I've plugged those numbers into this equation and 0.5 times 11.4 times 0.34, which is how we write 34% in decimal form indicates I need 1.938 tons of limestone per acre. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? It's a lot of stuff. And it even gets more so if I'm really going to steward the soil well and modify the top 12 inches because I have to multiply that number times 1.8 in order to modify the top foot. That's 3.5 tons, folks. 3.5 tons of limestone per acre. And what that does is it eliminates this hydrogen. So my hydrogen is now zero. My parking lot here that had 100 cars in it, 34 of them just pulled out and left. Okay? And this works, by the way, because calcium is what's called a divalent cation. It has a double positive charge. Magnesium also has a double positive charge. So when I put that calcium in the soil in the form of limestone, it has a stronger affinity for that negative soil charge than the hydrogen does. So it will, what we call, displace or push that hydrogen off the soil particle and attach itself in its place. The hydrogen migrates off to the atmosphere. Okay, it's a very light element and a gas. Now, at this point, we need to understand that there are different types of limestone. Not all limestone is the same stuff. And please pay close attention to this because when you go to the farm supply, after you've done all your equations here, and you go down to the farm co-op and you say, I need some limestone, I need three and a half tons per acre uh, for my field, uh, he's not going to know, in most cases, what type of limestone he's got. So it's up to you to find out what he's selling to you. And it's important to understand that limestone comes in three different flavors and variations of three different flavors, if you will. We have what's called calcitic limestone, which is calcium carbonate. We have hydrated limestone, which is calcium hydroxide. And we have dolomite limestone, which is calcium 
and magnesium carbonate. And your choice of limestone here is critically important. Your choice of limestone is critically important because part of what we're attempting to do in balancing this base saturation is to achieve right levels or a right relationship between the magnesium content and the calcium content. If we choose the wrong form of limestone here, we can throw that balance so far off that we cannot achieve the desired results. Okay? And this is the most common problem that I have seen working with my friends and neighbors in West Virginia. They all know, I mean, it's common knowledge that you add limestone to an acid soil. Everybody knows the soil is acid. So what does grandpa do? He goes out every year and he spreads a 50-pound bag of, of lime on his garden. And after years of doing that, he's now got his calcium levels so high that there's no room for magnesium in his soil. And his productivity starts to go down and down and down and down. And every year I hear the same complaints. Boy, that seed just isn't as good as it was a couple years ago. And I don't know what happened. It must have been the wet weather this year, but my tomatoes just didn't do well. You know, and the reason is you're, you're, you're throwing your soil more, farther and farther out of balance. So making the right choice of which form of limestone to use is really important. And in my particular case here, what we want to look at is we know the calcium's low. And essentially what we've done is we've eliminated 34 cars of hydrogen. So I'm going to move some cars of, of calcium and or magnesium in here depending on what this relationship is. Do you follow me? So if, if my magnesium's already at 17%, I'm just going to pull calcium cars in there, right? So I'm going to use one of these forms of limestone, neither one of these that only has calcium, and I'll raise my calcium. My calcium will go up by this 34%. Now, in my case, I'm still a little low on magnesium, right? So I'm going to look at using a dolomite lime, a calcium magnesium carbonate, and raise both of these. Do you follow me? Okay. Now, yes, Jim. The percentages are different, but essentially their neutralizing capacity, their ability to displace the hydrogen is very similar. If we wanted to really split hairs, we, we could look at this, but it's only the calcium portion of this compound that displaces the hydrogen. And it's only the calcium portion of this compound that displaces the hydrogen. So it, 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 it's, 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 they, they work equally for, for this particular step, okay? <clears throat> But if I'm using a form of dolomite that has magnesium in it too, then my magnesium level will also be raised. And if my magnesium level is too high, I was just speaking with a gentleman, it sounds like he has some high magnesium issues. If he puts dolomite on that ground, he's going to compound his problem. Okay? And the most common problems that we have in gardens that have been gardened over a period of time, especially here in, in the eastern U.S., where some of these gardens have been used for, for more than a century or two, is that things will be out of balance because of what we have done, not what nature has done. All right. Now, dolomite, too, is an interesting critter because in, in the, the particular instance that we're going to use as an example here, uh, this particular dolomite was 21% calcium and 12% magnesium. But that doesn't always hold true. 
because it depends on where the product was mined or whether it was a byproduct of, of sugar beet uh, production or a byproduct of some other uh, manufacturer. This, this relationship between the percentage of calcium and magnesium changes a lot. So that means, folks, we read the label, okay? And this is where you have to assume the responsibility because if you walk into the farm supply store, I can guarantee you, you ask them for a bag of lime, they're going to hand you something white. They don't know what's in that bag. Uh, you know, they probably never read the label because, frankly, unless you're following Albrecht's, um, you know, uh, philosophies here, it doesn't really matter. And it's, it, it's not an issue with, with, with them because they're on that yield paradigm rather than on the nutrition paradigm in terms of how they're producing food. Yes, yeah, speak up loudly if you would. Right. This is immaterial at this point. Um, let, let me clarify something. One of the, one of the assumptions that we're going to make here is regardless of what material here, that, that number of three and a half tons, we'll use three and a half tons of any of these to accomplish that result because what we're doing is we're pushing the hydrogen out. The percentages here are, are not important at this point, okay? They become more important later when we start looking at how much calcium is there for nutrition. But at, these, at this point, what we're assuming, and this is an assumption because these do have slightly different neutralizing capacities, but it's so slight that it's not worth splitting hairs over. We're working in a field, we're not working in a laboratory, and a margin of error of, of, of a percent or two is not really significant here. But all of these will essentially accomplish this same role of pushing the hydrogen out. Now, later that does get important, and we're going to cover that this afternoon. <clears throat> okay, so we made our selection here, and because my magnesium is low, I am going to apply dolomite and see what happens. I'm not going to apply it. I'm going to calculate for the application of dolomite to see what happens here. Okay? All right. Now, if we take those, any of those three materials and apply it to this soil, we chose to use dolomite, uh, this number is going to change to zero. And again, we've got a parking lot with 100 parking places in it. This number is now zero. And we've added both calcium and magnesium here in the form of dolomite, so these numbers have increased, okay? The, the hydrogen got pushed out, a calcium car pulled in, or a magnesium car pulled in. Well, how do we figure out how much we've raised them? How do we know whether we've gotten this 48 to 64 or 68 yet? And the simplest way to do that, and this is coarse math, I'm, I'm not zeroing in real specifically here, again, principles. <clears throat> if we take our 34% and we use dolomite, dolomite that we used had roughly a 2 to 1 ratio of calcium to magnesium. That, that, that was roughly a 2 to 1 ratio. So if we divide our hydrogen that we moved out, we take our 34 and we divide it by 3, to represent each of these parts, then one of those parts of 34 went to the magnesium column, two of the parts of the 34 went to the, to the calcium column. Okay? You see how that works? 
You follow that? All right. So because that particular dolomite was, was roughly a 2 to 1 ratio of 34, we can simply divide it by 3. One of those parts went to magnesium. Two of those parts went to calcium. And the result of that is we ended up changing. We've displaced the 34%. Hydrogen is now 0. pH is neutral. And since we use dolomite with a 2 to 1 ratio of calcium to magnesium, we increase the calcium by two parts. We increase the magnesium by one part. So our calcium level has gone from 48% to 70.6%. Is that good? That's good, isn't it? It's above 68. Our magnesium level has moved from 145 to 26%. Is that good? Well, not really. Not really. Uh, what was our range for magnesium? Anybody remember? 17 to 20% is what we were looking for. And one of the consequences of having magnesium too high is that the magnesium will tend to bind the soil. It tends to make it very crusty and very hard when it's wet and very goopy and very, or I'm sorry, very crusty and very hard when it's dry and very goopy and very soupy when it's wet. It really causes grief in the garden. And this is the kind of soil that, you know, you, 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 you have a very narrow window of opportunity to work with it. The moisture has to be just right or it's too hard. Uh, and if it's too moist, then it gets too soft too quickly. So in order to avoid that, we want to keep our magnesium levels at 20% uh, or below. When we start getting above 20%, that's when we get into big problems with this. So by taking the step that we took, we caused another problem. We got our calcium level up, but we've got too much magnesium. Now, what I want to do next is to take a second step, and that is to solve for how much magnesium to use on a soil to bring my magnesium level to 20%. Okay? I'm going to take the numbers from our first set of calculations. I'm just going to set them aside now. I'm still going to use those. I'm just going to set them aside for the moment. And what I'm going to do is focus only on magnesium and how to adjust magnesium from 14.5% to 20%. Okay? And this is the equation for accomplishing that. Again, I have a factor here of 240 times the CEC, which comes from my soil analysis. My desired level of magnesium, this 20 represents the 20% that I want here, and I'm subtracting what I have, which is 14.5% here. So if I carry this equation out to its conclusion, that tells me that I need 150 and a half pounds of magnesium to raise this from 14.5% to 20%. All right? That's magnesium. This is not dolomite. This is magnesium. How much actual magnesium do I need? The dolomite that I had contains 12% magnesium. So I have to convert this number of 150 pounds of actual magnesium. You're not going to buy pure magnesium, nor would you want to. <clears throat> so we have to consider that the dolomite that I have contains 12% magnesium. So in order to understand how much dolomite I need, I simply take this number divided by this number to tell me how many pounds of dolomite. And that's this equation down here. 150.48 
divided by 0.12 or 12% means that I'm going to add 1,254 pounds of dolomite to bring my magnesium to 20%. Okay? All right, it's getting awfully quiet out there, but I, I don't think I'm losing. I think the numbers are probably getting complicated, but think the steps here, okay? My first calculation was figure how much, how big a pile of, of limestone do I need to add to this field, okay? And when I, if I add that whole pile, there's too much magnesium. So I'm not going to add that whole pile. I'm just going to set it aside for a moment. And now I'm calculating for how much magnesium I need to add into that soil. And I come up with a measurement of a smaller pile of dolomite. Dolomite only to, to add to that field to meet the magnesium need. But I still need the same volume as in that bigger pile. So next I'm going to take this number and I'm going to subtract that, that smaller pile of dolomite I've added and add the rest in a calcitic form of limestone to meet the need, you see? Okay, now this is as hard as it gets. Um, the example that we're going through here is as hard as it gets. In a lot of instances, you'll be able to use one form of limestone or the other without needing to take this secondary step. This is a secondary step. But I just wanted to point it out to you because you may encounter this. And again, this presentation is, is on, that, on that presentation that's on our website. So if you want to, to dig into this and really do it, um, you can go through it step by step, okay? And uh, all right, so our first step, we determined we needed three and a half tons, and we're going to convert that to pounds. That's 6,960 pounds of limestone we needed to add. Okay, and in our calculation to figure out how much of that should be dolomite, we came up with 2,257 pounds. So the balance of that will be just from a calcitic limestone source with no magnesium in it. That way we use two different types of limestone to achieve the results that we want to get. Okay, and again, that's as complicated as it gets. It really doesn't get any worse than that. All right. <coughs> So, again, the idea here is to alter the base saturation. When we come back this afternoon, we'll talk about the influence that this has on our plant nutrition also, because it does. We've added stuff here. But at this point in time, we're simply looking at getting this balanced to create the right structure for our soil environment. Okay? <clears throat> So by doing that, our calcium level is now 76%. Our magnesium level is 20%. If we add these two things together, we've only got 100 parking places, remember. So if we add these two things together, that leaves me room for a 4% level of potassium here, right? Okay, so my range was from 3 to 5%. I can't get 5% because I don't have room for it. And this is the risk of using the wrong form of limestone also because if you, if you overuse either dolomite when you don't need it or use calcitic limestone when you need dolomite, you'll find that you get your calcium and magnesium numbers so far out of whack that you can't get them back in order. Now, there's a way to do that, but it's about a 10-year process. And the way to do it involves 
you know, if you've, if you've made that mistake on, on some of these, these, these garden soils that you may encounter where you'll find 90% calcium and 3 or 4% magnesium, and I've seen those, uh, the only way to really overcome that and get your magnesium back in the right balance is to acidify the soil again, and that takes three to five years, and then bring it back according to these standards, which can take another three to five years. Because actually when you're applying this kind of, 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 of amount of material to the soil in, in you know, the initial application here, uh, these can be quite large. Bear in mind now, these, are, these, these, these calcium particles are being attached to the minerals in the soil. This is a one-time application. It's not like you're going to be doing this every year. This is the first step, and it's a relatively permanent fix. I won't say it's going to stay permanent, but you're going to get your pH up to 7. It's going to stay there for quite a while. I'm, I'm talking, you know, many, many years. Not, 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 uh, it, it, it's not a very fluid situation because you're actually bonding these materials to the soil particles. But when we want to change that, when we're driving the hydrogen out using limestone, it can take three to five years for that to happen because this, this happens at, at the molecular level, right? So we want to use a very pulverized, finely ground form of limestone to do this. We want to incorporate it into the soil as best we can, and then we need to let it sit and simmer for a, a, a period of time for all those chemical reactions to take place. And that can take up to three years. And it can also take up to three to five years for sulfur to have an acidifying effect on the soil for the same reason. So if you're gonna, if, 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 if you've got a really serious problem and you're banging the pH back and forth that way, it can take 10 years to get you through this loop. And that's not something I would want to wish on anybody. When you put those kinds of amendments on your soil, how long before you can plant? Immediately, usually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, nothing I'm going to suggest to you needs to be done vastly in advance. You're not going to gain, as I said, you're not going to gain the full benefit of doing this for three years. But if you're calculating it appropriately, nothing is going to go on to the point where, it, you know, our, our whole objective here is to improve the soil environment, not harm the biology. And if you do it appropriately, you mix it in properly, you're using the right rates and the right ratios, you're not going to have an environment there that's toxic. And even in the case of using some synthetic fertilizers, you know, uh, oftentimes on the fertilizer bag itself, it'll tell you, you know, work this into the soil and, and wait a few days before you plant. Well, that's because you're bombing the soil with excessive soluble salts, which are, are damaging to the root systems. But if you put on the right amount and there's sufficient moisture in the soil, uh, you'll actually increase microbiology rather than decrease it. So it's all a matter, you know, the dose, the, the poison is in the dose, so to speak. So if you're calculating for the correct doses, uh, you, you're not going to have, have waiting periods. Okay. <clears throat> yes? On the calculation of the 10 inch that you need, are you recommending uh, calculating for the 6 inches or the 12 inches? I, cal I, I calculate for 12 inches. The spirit of prophecy is interesting. You know, it tells us to plow deep, you know, plows deeply. We have the example of Ellen White's vision at Avondale where she saw the open furrow uh, that was a quarter of a yard deep. And that, to me, was an indication of what plowing deeply meant, 9 to 12 inches. Because typically, uh, the 6 and 2 thirds is, is, is what has been used simply because that's what most tillage equipment, uh, you know, addressed. 
and in our home gardens, having that extra capacity of a, a, a foot deep in our root zone and a, a foot of very active microbiology and a foot of well-nourished soil uh, gives us uh, you know, a, a, a good reservoir of nutrition there for, for the crops to use and a good reservoir of microbiology to overcome things like freezes when, you know, when the top three or four inches of our soil freezes in West Virginia. I've still got active biology below that. As soon as it thaws out, it repopulates and, you know, it just stays healthier. And I also garden very intensively. You know, we, we grow on some of our ground on a year-round basis. We have as many as five crops per year. Uh, on some of our plots and three crops per year even on the outdoor beds in West Virginia. So we're, we're demanding a lot from the soil so we want a bigger, we want a good bank account. Okay, yes, one other question. Say, um, I shouldn't kill because you are disturbing the, the microorganisms. Uh, Those people don't read the Bible. Okay. The Bible says till. And the disturbance of microorganisms, this is really, to me, this is absolutely goofy. I mean, not just a little bit odd, but it's just absolutely goofy. Because microorganisms in the right environment in the soil repopulate so quickly that within a period of 24 to 48 hours, you can repopulate a totally sterile segment of soil. It happens that fast. So, no, I, dis I strongly disagree with that. You can overtill, and you can damage the structure of the soil, and you can damage some of the arthropods, the earthworm populations and things, by overtilling. But it's a negligible uh, effect on the overall productivity of the soil. But broad fork is fine. I mean, any, uh, how, how, you know, how you choose to do this is, is fine. I, you know, I'm lazy. I want to do it the simplest, easiest way that will let me get things accomplished without violating principles that I understand. And in my case, uh, I, I disc and I till. I don't do it excessively, but I have no aversion to using a disc or a rototiller in my garden. And, uh, you know, the, uh, <sighs> there are many different methods. depends on your soil type and, and your soil density, how, how you want to address things. But... Uh, the, the, the whole no-till permaculture thing is, to me, an aberration. It does make sense to me. And uh, the other thing that I'll say, too, is over an extended period of time, again, remember, when I said scientific principle means a four-year replication, seven plots, seven replications in each plot before you establish anything, I've not seen many permaculture situations that have extended beyond the second or third growing season before they've absolutely collapsed. So I've not seen good examples of that. You see, you'll find pictures of them in books, but I've not seen it personally. It's a deterioration over time that is eventually going to crash because you're not following right principles. You had a question back there, sir? So, uh, Speak up loudly, please. What's the balance with the no-till versus over-tilling, uh, example? That's a discussion for another day and another time. I simply don't have time to address all of that. But there are, purpose, there, there, there's, there, there are a lot of considerations to be made in that that we just don't have time to address today. Not all the time? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It, it's, uh, uh, again, we have to understand principles. We all have such a strong desire just to follow the menu or the method. Show me how to do it, Bob. Tell me what to do. What do I spray with? What do I fertilize with? I can't answer those questions for you. 
until I have an array of information about the, 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 the dynamic environment that you're in. I can't answer your question without knowing what kind of soil we're talking about. I can't, you know, it's, it's simply wrong to think that we can apply things across the board and get the same result. We're applying a very mechanistic concept to agriculture when we do that, and it's very, very flawed. This is why we need the experimental knowledge of that daily experience in the garden. You know, I teach in my class, most of us want to grow our own food. How many of you want to grow your own food? How many of you actually do? Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Good group here. The statement that I make in my class, and I'll stand behind this because I've seen examples of it, is that I'm not calling all of you that want to grow your own food to be full-time farmers. How many of you that do grow your own food, do it? Is that your full-time vocation? One? Okay. It doesn't take a lot to do this, but it does take time. And the statement that I make is for a family of four, one person, whether it's the dad or the older son, one person working a half an hour a day diligently with right principles, with experimental knowledge, and with the right strategies can grow all the food you need for a family of four. And that can be done on two-thirds of an acre. And that includes your fruits, your grains, your staples, your vegetables, everything. It can be done. So I'm not calling everybody to be a full-time farmer. But by his grace, we all need that time in the garden because we all need the instruction so he can tell you whether you need to double dig or whether it's time to till or not. And he will if we understand the principles. So, you know, I, I, it, this, you know we, we, we become very reductionist in our, in our thinking sometimes, and it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply in our spiritual life, does it? Why do we expect it to apply in, 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 in our physical life as related to, to agriculture? It's a spiritual endeavor out there. We need, to, uh, we need to approach it reverently. And just as Adam had the knowledge in his heart when he was in the Garden of Eden, to dress and keep that garden, he didn't turn around and say, well, Lord, you know, what method do I use here? You know, how do I, do I prune this? Do I twist that? He, the Lord wouldn't have asked him if he didn't impart that knowledge to him. He knew what, was, what, what he needed to do. He needed the direction to do it. He gave us that too, folks. We have everything we need in our hearts. Our problem is that we've turned our back on it so, for so long that now we're totally disconnected from it. So in order to be reconnected, we want to find that quick, easy formula that'll get me back into a situation where I have confidence in knowing what I'm doing. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have confidence in what I'm doing. I've been doing this for 50 years. And I'm still learning every day. Every day. Every time I'm out in that garden, the Lord, the Lord shows me something new, something different. And that's the way it ought to be. Now, I'm, I'm, because of my experience and because of all the, the varieties and things that I've, that I've done and seen, I avoid a lot of mistakes. I do things very efficiently. But I certainly don't feel like I've arrived, especially when it comes to understanding the soil microbiology. Frankly, we don't know much about that at all. That's, a, that's an area for, for lots of investigation and understanding. What populations of bacteria are the most beneficial? 
You know, what, what kinds of, of organic amendments can we add to that soil to really encourage the types of microorganisms that are specific to the crops that I'm growing? These are things that we just don't have much information about and don't know. There's so much more that I don't know than that I know that I'm just astonished. And I know that it's not simply following a formula that's going to get me to those answers any more than it is for you. So we think about principles. We understand the soil, its characteristics. We understand when it needs to be tilled and when it's time to leave it alone. We recognize that there are certain laws, if you will, of chemistry that must be employed. There are certain laws of irrigation and water and timing that must be employed. And we try to work in harmony with those things in our situation. Okay. Yeah. Well, in my particular circumstance, yes, I would wait three years because oftentimes a mistake people will make, especially if it's a large amount of amendment, this was three and a half tons per acre, uh, not all of that is going to be tied up right away. And if I take uh, a measure, uh, an, another sample too soon, I'm going to show lots of free calcium in the soil and I'm going to show probably a very high pH, an inordinately high pH because that free that free limestone will show up in, in the sample. So about three years is when I would take it. And it should be about in that range. I did test this after three years, and it was right on target. It was right on target. And the reality is, you know, the, you, know I, you might test from time to time for other things for some of the plant nutrients. But once you do this, I mean, we can reason from cause to effect. If I have two, and I add two to it, what's my result going to be? It's going to be four. Okay, how about if I do it another time? I take two and I add two to it. What's the result going to be? It's going to be four. It, numerically, it has to happen. Mathematically, it has to happen, right? So if we approach our calculations for our soil chemistry properly and follow the right formulas, I know that in three years my pH is going to be seven. So I don't really need to test it. I tested mine to verify it. But, uh, you know, I didn't really need to test it to know that. And the only reason I did test it was actually to look at some other things because my soil was very low in boron and it was very low in, in zinc and, and some other areas. I was actually looking at those things to see if I'd gotten them properly corrected. Yes? Yes, I would. Yes. Yes, I would, especially in your case, because it was over three years ago, right? If it was still within that three-year window, I'd have some question about some things, but, but yes. And we'll have a discussion about your circumstance. <clears throat> okay, so anyway, that addresses, so far, the uh, magnesium and the calcium. And again, I know we, we've gone through this much too quickly for you to absorb all of this, but the calculations, the equations and things are on the website and please avail yourself to those. Uh, just don't plague me with phone calls on, <laughs> you know, on April 2nd or 3rd when I'm out trying to get all of my work done out in the field. I, I, I do respond to emails usually over a period of time, and I'd be happy to try to, uh, to assist where I can, but realize that I am a full-time farmer, and, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not readily available as a consultant, okay? <clears throat> All right, the one thing that we haven't addressed is potassium. 
And I want to take a minute here uh, to, to talk about potassium because it's very important to plant physiology. It's very important in the soil. But potassium has a really complex chemistry in the soil. It, 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 uh, most soils have quite a bit of potassium in them, but depending on temperature and biological activity and moisture, uh, your test results can fluctuate quite a bit. Uh, there have probably been more doctoral theses done on the topic of potassium availability in soil in our land-grant universities than on any other single topic. And um, potassium is also expensive. Uh, now that China has entered the global market in terms of agriculture, the demand for a lot of the inputs for agriculture has increased their prices pretty tremendously. And potassium is one of the more costly things that we have to invest in when correcting our soil. So we don't want to overdo it with potassium, but we certainly want to make sure that enough is there. And in order to determine how much potassium I'm going to add to my soil, I'm going to use just basically a simple chart. And this is a linear chart, meaning that if I, if I take this number and divide it, or take this number and subtract it from this number, divide it by 5, that will give me all the points here between 5 and 10, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It's a linear chart in both directions. So you can break this down mathematically to exactly what your, uh, what your CEC is and exactly what your, uh, you know, what your uh, levels are. Uh, to make it useful for you. I'm not going to go through all that right now. <clears throat> but anyway, you can take this chart, and this is on the website too. And in my case, I had 2.9% uh, potassium, and uh, I have room for, for 4%, so I'm going to plug some numbers in here based on what my CEC is to tell me how much I, I need to add. And in my case, uh, I needed to add about 118 pounds of, of potash to my soil. And this leads me to another uh, point of discussion that I want to make here before we wrap this up today. <clears throat> I have a couple of sources I could use uh, to meet that demand for potassium. Uh, the organic source, and one that's widely used by organic growers, is called green sand. Uh, many of you have probably used this, you're familiar with it. Green sand's about 3% potassium or potash, actually. It's even less potassium, but it's about 3% pot, uh, uh, potash. And um, if you're going to apply 118 pounds of that per acre, that's two tons of green sand. Now, where I live in rural West Virginia, if I wanted to procure this and transport it to my property and apply it, that would be a, a pretty substantial investment, pretty expensive. And, you know, for those of us that have an environmental sensitivity, too, we think, well, the green sand's natural product, it's just mined, and the potassium sulfate, that's, you know, that's, that's a manufactured product. Uh, they've used lots of, of resources. That can't be a green product. Well, the reality is when you start transporting stuff like this halfway, or, uh, you know, across the country, uh, you're burning lots of diesel fuel, folks, and you're wearing out lots of hydrocarbon tires and... You know, there's, there's a cost to using things in large amounts, too. And the, the other source, of, and, and this also can be certified for organic use, depending on the manufacturer, but potassium sulfate is basically potassium that's been mined and reacted with sulfuric acid. And it has a much, much higher analysis, either 50 or 52% potassium. 
and it's much more affordable. And as you can see, the rates here are, are staggeringly different on a per acre basis. I only need 236 pounds of this as opposed to 3,933 pounds of the other. So I think it's important for us to realize that, you know, sometimes we can get a little carried away in our desire to be green and organic and ignore some materials that can be safe. And that's one of the, the last presentation I'm gonna give this afternoon is on which of these materials are safe. And I'm not saying that they all are, believe me. Uh, there's a lot of really hazardous stuff out there too, uh, both for use in organic agriculture and for use uh, you know, from uh, synthetic commercial fertilizers. Uh, but we have to have some discernment and, and discretion here. Yes, ma'am. Have you heard of um, uh, KMAG? Pardon me? Yes. You, yeah. What are you? It's, it's, it's not on my safe list. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, we'll talk specifically about some of those products later today. Do wood ashes in your mind factor into this? Wood ashes can be used in place of limestone at almost the same ratio. Uh, you know, a pound of limestone and a pound of, of wood ashes, depending on what the species is. Uh, have about the same uh, neutralizing capacity, but the, the challenge with the wood ash is that you don't know how much potassium is there, you don't know exactly what the numbers are, and in zeroing in on trying to get this balance correctly done, uh, I want to use something that's quantifiable. We can't, can't quantify all of, of, of the capacity of the wood ash unless we actually analyze it. But yes, it is a product that could be used for a similar purpose. But, uh, you know, again, and, and same thing's true in, in talking about manures or other things we're going to be adding to our gardens. Unless we know what the actual analysis is, we're flying blind. We really are flying blind. So just because it's natural does not mean it's the right thing for your garden. Okay? And to emphasize that, this, this quote came from, uh, from J.I. Rodale. He was the founder of Organic Gardening Magazine. This was written back in the 1940s. And he said, we organic gardeners have let our enthusiasm run away with us. We've said that the nitrogen which is in organic matter is different and somehow better from nitrogen in a commercial fertilizer. This is not so. And it isn't. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. Actually, there's no difference between the nitrogen in a chemical fertilizer and the nitrogen in a leaf. And that's a true statement. It's true then and it's true now. Now, some... some there's some explanation that needs to go along with this, but the truth of this stands. And in many instances today, especially among folks that are concerned about growing healthful food, we have a real fear of synthetic products. And unfortunately, that's a misguided fear in a lot of circumstances. There are many things that are made synthetically that I frankly feel are far more effective and safer than their natural alternatives. This is one of the things that I have strong disagreement about the organic, National Organic Program on. Because I think the National Organic Program allows a lot of, uh, of components in the production of our crops uh, that are unsafe, including many of the methods that they use for fertilizing those crops. And I think that in some instances, not all instances, in some instances, synthetic products are a safer, more economic, more environmentally friendly, and more effective material. And I will go through that. So if that, if that makes me a heretic in, in, in your book, I'm a heretic. 
But again, I'm applying science to what I do. I'm not saying go out there and throw a sack of urea on your, on your tomatoes to make them bright and shiny and green. You know, don't, you don't use this stuff indiscriminately. There are, uh, you know, there's knowledge and understanding that needs to be had, but please be aware that, uh, that there are uh, distortions and deceptions on both sides of this conventional organic uh, feud that is taking place, and I'll call it a feud because it's really well. It's all, actually all-out warfare right now, uh, and there are things on both sides that are not in alignment with principles for health and safety, and not in alignment with the uh, the desire to grow good, quality, healthful food. <clears throat> okay, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I want to kind of go through this quickly. Um, if you have a calcareous soil, those principles of meeting the base saturation requirements, I'm, I'm going to go through this quick because we're almost out of time, but again, there's, uh, the, this information is on the website too. Uh, 3 to 5% potassium, 17 to 20 magnesium, and greater than 68% calcium. This holds true whether your soil is an acid soil, a calcareous soil, or a sodic soil. It's true on all three types of soils. Our method of getting there is slightly different, okay? Because obviously if our soil is already neutral or above neutral, we don't want to add limestone to it, so we're going to use a different source to help raise the calcium level, and that source is, is, is usually gypsum or calcium sulfate. <clears throat> um, in the instances of dealing with calcareous soils, we're actually not going to change the pH with any of these things. And the physical properties of the soil, if our magnesium levels are too high, will benefit by additional calcium. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to give you a quick overview here that there are answers to your questions, even though I may not get to the specific answer in a, in a real specific way today. I know this is kind of general. <clears throat> okay. Uh, these materials are also safe. If you're using gypsum, that's 23% calcium. That's pure calcium sulfate. Epsom salt, depending on uh, whether or not it has water molecules attached to it, is either 9% or 20% magnesium. And the potassium sulfate source, as I said, uh, depending on the label and the manufacturer, some of these are certified for organic use too. So uh, that's also a safe material. Uh, sulfur, if you're going to adjust your pH, should be 99% sulfur. And sulfur is one of those compounds that we have to be a little bit careful about because a lot of the sulfur that's marketed for agricultural use is, is sulfur that is from spent industrial processes and uh, can contain some heavy metals. So uh, uh, you've never, you won't find 100% sulfur because they're not willing to label it that in case a rat hair or something fell into the bag while it was being bagged. They can't claim 100%, but they should, should say 99%. Uh, also, this is a chart here that will help you determine rates of sulfur to add to your soil to bring down the pH if your pH is too high. If your pH is above about 7.5, frankly, crops will grow, uh, in, in my experience, really well, uh, even at relatively high pH, uh, uh, 7.7, 7.8. You start to get above that, then you start having a decline in yield. Uh, but uh, crops grown even at a high pH can have really nice quality and uh, are often very firm and very dense and have good shelf life too. <clears throat> uh, but um, uh, this will, will um, just kind of give you a guideline to help you see 
quantities of things. And again, uh, what I want to emphasize is the higher the CEC you have, uh, the more amount of material you need to add to accomplish the same thing in your soil. So a nice, uh, you know, sandy loam soil, uh, silt loam soil, uh, clay loam soil even is, is, is very nice to deal with. If you've got a heavy clay soil to work with, uh, you're, you're buying yourself some more expense in, in getting that soil in the right chemical balance. <clears throat> uh, one of the challenges with calcareous soils is that they can be high in magnesium, which uh, causes problems, and even though they are already high in calcium, sometimes they'll benefit by the additional calcium uh, to overcome that physical aspect of the soil. Essentially, they, the extra calcium causes what's called flocculation or clumping of the soil particles, which reduces some of the... Uh, uh, some of the uh, problems with flocculation. If your magnesium is low in a calcareous soil, you address that the same way we did in the acid soil with the same equation. Uh, the difference is that we would use a different material for applying the magnesium, and instead of using a dolomite lime, uh, we would use uh, something neutral like Epsom salt as the source uh, for that. Okay. Sodic soils... Uh, these get a little bit complex to deal with. The primary problem with uh, a sodic soil is high sodium levels. Uh, when sodium levels are above 10% or so in the base saturation, they can really start to interfere with plant growth. And uh, one of the ways that we eliminate sodium from the soil is, again, to displace it with calcium, just like we did the hydrogen. And there are calculations and methods for accomplishing that I don't have time to go into today. Um, but the important thing that I want you to understand if you're working with a sodic soil is, um, especially if your pH is 8 or above, make sure you're using the Olson analysis method on that soil or the numbers that you get back are going to be quite skewed and uh, will, will, will not give you a good picture of how to, how to get that base saturation uh, uh, exactly dialed in on. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.